I'm Mike Scala, like I said, joined by Jay Carter, and he is known as Timid in the Hip Hop World. He's the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Hey, what's going on, Mike? Everything is uh, good for you? Yeah, things are going well. Yeah, it's a little rainy out this way. Um, a little darker than normal, so we can tell the seasons are changing. Yeah, fall is definitely here. The weather changed very quickly here. Yeah. It was hot, summer weather, then all of a sudden, almost got cold, or it felt cold. It felt like we missed out on that fall. It was jumping right from summer to winter. Yeah. But that's why we have our special guest this week, who is an environmental scientist. Maybe you can shed some light on this and talk about what we need to be doing to protect ourselves, because this kind of weather is not normal. So we are joined by Khaled Alamari. Good to see you, Khaled. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, we, we are in the midst of uh, hurricane season. You know, our uh, minds and hearts goes to our uh, brothers and sisters in uh, the coast of Florida. Uh, obviously, they are getting hit. And, uh, you know, a lot of us do have families in that region. And uh, let's hope that they are okay, that they are able to uh, withstand the, and become resilient on this uh, event. Uh, again, my name is Khalid Al-Marie. Uh, I work for the, on the environment for a quarter century. Uh, most of my work have been here in, in Jamaica Bay. Yeah, and you know, Puerto Rico just got hit very badly. We talked about that last week. All the power went out. It's a mess down there. So we pray for our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico as well. You know, all over, everywhere we look, we're getting it. And uh, you mentioned before we went live, the report about protecting ourselves here in New York. And uh, we'll get into that because it's important. We need to protect ourselves with God forbid another event on the level of Hurricane Sandy, or even less than that, quite honestly. Cause, you know, we, we need to be better prepared for that. So we will discuss that in a few minutes, but we'd like to lead in with something on the lighter side. And I know you mentioned you grew up a Yankees fan. Yes, yes, definitely. I, uh, you know, hopefully the Yankees are officially in the playoff. Uh, let's hope they win the division. And uh, we keep on uh, uh, on our toe, hoping that uh, Aaron Judge is going to hit number 61 and hopefully number 62 either tonight or sometime this week. Uh, I am a diehard Yankee fan. Uh, you know, growing up when Don Mattingly, Ricky Henderson, Dave Winfield were at their prime. So it's a long time back in the 80s was really that there, uh, you know, when I really got into baseball and I never left it. Yes, I do love baseball as well. So currently Aaron Judge is on 60. He's tied with Babe Ruth. Is that what it is? And he's, he needs one more or, or, or did he beat Babe Ruth? He needs no, one he, more to get Roger Maris. Babe Ruth and need one more to, uh, to tie Maris and then to, to break Maris. it. And I consider if he does hit 62, he should be the leading uh uh, the guy that breaks the record, because I really don't think Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire should be uh, in the record because of their steroid use. And that's another a lot issue. Of, yeah. Yeah. A lot of controversy yeah. over that. So even putting them aside, he would have the American League record at 61, right? He would be tied for the record at 61. 62, he would own the record by himself. Definitely. And in addition to that, he could actually win the Triple Crown. So the Triple Crown is batting average. RBIs and a home run. Uh, he's leading in home run RBIs, and he's in the threshold of winning uh, the batting average. So that is really amazing if you think about it, because most home run hitters will swing and miss a lot. They, their average usually isn't that high because they're just trying to hit the ball as hard as they can. So right. if you'd be able to get basically the 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 
the highest average or the, or the, the most amount of hits or, you know, you, you, you not only hit for power, but you hit for, for contact as well. Or you don't miss a lot. That's really like a once in a lifetime type talent, right? That's not something that you see all the time. Definitely. And it's also contract season. So if he does break, a, <laughs> he's going to be making uh, big bucks with the New York. Hopefully he stays with the Yankees. Right. I'll tell you what, you, you, got, you guys are talking ancient Greek to me. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So Jay is not a baseball fan. Jay is a Marvel fan. So he'd rather talk about superheroes. What if there was a superhero who was good at baseball? We can kind of combine the two. <laughs> no, it's just, uh, yeah, sports. I'm, I'm not a big watcher of, of sports on TV. I like playing, you know, but um, yeah, knowing the stats and the players and all that, like, yeah, I just. Well, this is a big thing because, like we said, it's the home run record, not just for the year, but of all time. It's the most home runs oh, okay. in a single season for any player that he's chasing right now. So it's very historic. And that's just with the Yankees. The Mets also are doing well. I believe this is their best season since 86, maybe even better. Um, you you know, people who are more diehard in, in terms of stats and, and all that kind of stuff can correct me on that. But the Mets are doing very well. Currently, both the Mets and the Yankees are leading their divisions. They will be the number two seeds, meaning the second best in their leagues, respectively. And they could end up meeting each other in the World Series, which would be great for New York if we had a Mets versus Yankees World Series. But the Mets are in a very close race with the Braves right now as well, which is exciting. It's coming down to the wire. Only a few games left in the season. And you're only within a couple of games. And, and, the, and it just so happens that the Mets and the Braves are going to play each other for a three-game series at the end of the season. So, you know, whoever wins that has a good chance to win the division. Although they're saying that with the Mets uh, ahead now, if they can maintain this, it may be a situation where the Mets only need to win one of those three games to win the division. But either way, they'll be in the playoffs because of the wild card. You know, they expanded the number of teams who make the playoffs. It's a whole conversation now. So uh, Mets and Yankees will both be in the postseason, and I hope they do make it to the end. Right. Good for New York. Yes, exactly right. Good for New York. Sounds like either way, there's a potential for a New York win, whether it's one or the other. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm from Queens. I've grown up a Mets fan, but if it's the Yankees and they're not playing the Mets, I'm definitely going to root for the Yankees. If it's Yankees versus Mets, I'll be rooting for the Mets. But either way, it's, it's great for the city. Great for our economy. Great for our morale. We need wins right now as a city because uh, we're seeing a lot of negativity in many forms. And we can get into uh, Khaled because we talked about the weather. So you are an environmental scientist. You mentioned a report from the Army Corps of Engineers about seawalls to protect us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, definitely. So extreme weather is becoming the new norm uh, worldwide. There's some areas in the world that get a lot of rain, some get no rain. And there's also intensity in various areas in a very short period of time, we get very uh, high intensity of rain and that causes flooding. Uh, when New York City's sewer system was uh, initially designed, uh, you know, back in uh, the early 1900, uh, and that time, there was the cholera epidemic. As a matter of fact, at that time, more people died from cholera than World War I. So they wanted to kind of create a sewer system rather than have a septic system. And what they did is they look at other cities and say, what is the best way of creating a sewer system? And back then, the population of New York City was in the hundreds of thousands. And they looked to Baltimore and Philadelphia. And they, it was a combined system. What it means is that the stormwater and sanitary water 
flowing the same pipe. And that was good enough for them to uh, uh, pipe the water to the, to the ocean, or I should say to the New York City Harbor. 70% uh, of New York City is a combined sewer system. What that means, when it rains more than a quarter inch, we have 496 outfalls that raw sewage goes to the harbor. What the state said that they wanted to build wastewater treatment plant. We, uh, New York City have 14 wastewater treatment plant and those plant, you know, at the beginning, the 1930s, 40s, 50s and on, they were primary and secondary. What that means is they treat, they take the, the waste of the oil and treat uh, and then dump the water. Obviously we were looking for tertiary uh, treatment because there was a lot of nitrogen load into the New York City Harbor. Uh, you know, we lost a lot of uh, the fisheries at that time. Also, uh, dumping was legal in New York City. So the cutoff was really 1970. In 1970, what happened is that the EPA was born and then they said, okay, so we, we, you need to stop dumping in the water. And as a matter of fact, all New York City garbage, you, most of it used to be dumped about five miles away from the Rockaways. So it was used to sink there and then we contaminate that whole uh, uh and then the rest of the new york city with pcbs and all that contaminant uh, new york city you know for us who grew up in new york city the harbor was dark the new york city it was hard to really visualize if you're uh, look you know looking at the water you're you know you put your hand in there you cannot see it because it was so dark from for contaminant ever since the new york city have invested billions of dollars to improve the system uh, to build the tertiary system uh, uh, and to treat the water uh, with chlorine before it gets dumped into the water. Now, obviously, we still have some issues when it rains a lot. When it rains a lot, the raw sewage goes to the harbor. For us that lives in the Rockaways, Howard Beach, Hamilton Beach, you occasionally uh, smell raw sewage coming out of that area. And especially if we are kind of immune to it because a lot of us are kind of adapted. But for those that come from the uh, from outside the area, they, they smell it and they say, what the hell is going on here? Uh, so the city have came a long way. As a matter of fact, my very last project working for the New York City Department of Environmental Protection is that I work in a, uh, in a contract called the uh, post-construction monitoring for consent judgment by the state where we were required to reduce the nitrogen load by 90%. Uh, there was a phase one that was done by a different group uh, from the agency. Phase two, I, I worked on it. It's been awarded, the contract had been awarded to a company called HDR. They're going to be monitoring it. At the same time, you could also, in Jamaica Bay, you could go to Open Data and Google Harbor Survey. You could, uh, every week, we have scientists that goes in there. They measure water. They measure water for uh, chemical and biological. You could find out... Uh, you know, the areas that are contaminated, the areas that are that are good quality. Overall, the New York City Harbor and Jamaica Bay have been improved dramatically. When you go to the DEP website, you're gonna see along the, there's maps along the years how the, how the New York City Harbor and specifically uh, Jamaica Bay have improved. I also worked on the Jamaica Bay Watershed Protection Plan, which is the idea is to improve the plant, uh, 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 the harbor, and to look what's going on inside the the, uh, the sewage shed watershed. Uh, the idea is to really improve the system. Most uh, some of the ideas that we came up with is the green infrastructure, which is the rain garden. A lot, you know, they're popping everywhere. 
those projects, I worked on the pilot study. That pilot study was basically instead of the water going directly to the storm, to the sewer system, and you know, and then overload the sewer, it goes into this rain garden. It does a phytoremediation where it kills the, uh, the contaminant. And at the same time, uh, it goes into the groundwater as a filtered water system. Uh, you know, when you guys pass the Belt Park where you see two landfill, the Brooklyn Queens, uh, one is Pennsylvania Avenue landfill. The other one adjacent to it is the Fountain Avenue landfill. I was, I had the opportunity and the privilege to work on those projects. We planted more than 30,000 trees uh, and 23 different species of, uh, of grasses. It's now in Yegas. If you go up there, you're gonna see, it's beautiful. You can see the whole Jamaica Bay uh, and you see New York City from there. And these, see, these are some of the projects that I have worked on with the New York City DEP, but most of my work has been really encompassing in Jamaica Bay and a lot of ecological restoration, such as Thursby Basin, Edgemere Landfill. So my, you know, I see that the result of my work in my district, uh, in the areas that I that I lived, and I, you know, I'm very proud of all the work that we did. Let me, can I ask you a question? So it sounds like um, you're talking about the, the the sewage system in New York City and the in the, the extremes of weather that's getting worse and worse. Is the system prepared for what's coming the way it is so, now? Yeah, good good question. So initially, when when the sewer system was created. They, they designed the sewer system uh, for uh, extreme weather that happened every 50 years. So the sewer system that, you know, for a local street, you might see a 10 inch pipe. Uh, and, you know, the main sewers, you might see a 24 inch pipe. It is operated by natural gravity system for the most part of New York City. Uh, then uh, in some part of New York City, we did uh, uh, extreme weather one in a hundred years. One in hundred, that means that we increase the size of the pipe, but at the same time that those, those pipe have also been degraded. What that means is that the biogeochemical cycle inside those pipe, there's a grease that gets built up inside those pipe. Uh, when they build up the, 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 the sewer system no longer designed for the work that is, is supposed to be done. That's why in some areas in your neighborhood, you got floods. So the city have a lot of you know program where they redo in various part of uh, uh, changing the, the the sewer system, the infrastructure that has been obsolete, and you see that in various neighborhoods over here in Ozone Park by Cross Bay Boulevard and Pitkin, there was a major work that was done to improve the sewer system, and that work continues. Right now, the code that we're doing is that we're building the sewer system for one uh, uh, for extreme weather that happened every 500 years. Now, obviously, when New York City was built, we didn't have any regulation for wetlands. So you see areas such as Howard Beach that was former wetlands, the Broad Channel, most of the, uh, the Rockaways, and Canarsie. That Canarsie was really a wetland and it was built and people building there. And a lot when, it, when there's a storm surge, you know, for, for most of us that remember not far away, uh, Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy was not even a hurricane. It was below a level one. But the problem was that, that we had uh, high tide. And, you know, for, for those who have experienced it, you've seen flooded in Howard Beach and Hamilton Beach was under underwater. Uh, but imagine if we get a, a hurricane level two, three, or uh, a possibility of a level four or five, that could be catastrophic for our region. So my my uh, you know my understanding and and that we need to 
make sure that we continue uh, to take over city uh, city uh, water edge properties and convert them to wetlands. Uh, and that serves as a buffer for extreme weather. Hmm. Okay. Now you mentioned that there was a study that came out by the Army Corps of Engineers that recommended a seawall, but it might take decades to build. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, so the, the New York, uh, the, well, the Army Corps of Engineers is a federal government and their, their job, and as a matter of fact, they did a lot of work in Jamaica Bay, they dredged in what, you know, for the last hundred plus years, we were losing wetlands. So they were uh, dredging, but they were also replenishing uh, some of those areas that we lost. Uh, because of Hurricane Sandy, uh, the Army Corps of Engineering looked at Europe and said, look, these people in the Netherlands and various and, and uh, Germany and other areas that are uh, below or above, just above sea level have walls to protect them from uh, storm surge. And they came up with this plan to safeguard New York City is a gate. What happened is that when extreme weather hits in, the gate opens up in various parts of New York City to save areas that are lowland. Now, what is the cost for this, a project like this? It's around roughly $35 billion. Now, you have to go through a process. That $35 billion, the report is available online. You could Google it. And it's uh, 400 pages looking at different part of the areas, lowland areas. They build a model about how uh, the city will look like if, you know, various uh, extreme weather. And it's supposed to, the model's supposed to say that we're, uh, we could save New York City from extreme weather, especially downtown Manhattan and areas that is really, uh, New York City is really considered the capital of the world, but who's gonna pay for the, Who's gonna pay that high cost price? And we're still far away from that. So for, imagine that this year alone, inflation rate was 8.3%. So imagine what it would look like in another 30, 40 years when the project start. My issue with that idea is that maintenance is very costly. Just to maintain those walls and assuming that uh, uh, the weather pattern changes, that the design and the structure is no longer valid. But it's a proposal. It makes it's making a lot of noise. People are paying attention to it. It might work with the right push from politician. You know, New York City is a uh, is a mostly a democratic world here. And it is a democratic federal government, so they could potentially push the project, but it needs uh, it needs funding. What most of the funding comes in from, it comes in fifty. Uh, the federal government will pay fifty uh, percent, and the local city will uh, pay fifty cent. Now, how is that? Where is the money going to come from? Well, it's going to come out of our own pocket. Are you ready for high property tax? Are you ready for high income tax? City income tax? Uh, and these things that we really need to, to kind of uh, uh, question ourselves, you know, a lot of uh, people in, in this district are homeowners. Property tax is really a big burden for them. Just imagine adding 20, 30% to that tax, uh, to that property tax. It is going to be a problem for many people. So the cost, where is the money going to come from? Who's willing to pay for it? That is the question. Right. And also the time that they're projecting is going to take. I mean, you said it could be 30 to 40 years. Correct. We have that much time to wait. And I want you to be honest, if we have another event, even on the level of a Hurricane Sandy, is our infrastructure able to accommodate that now or are we in trouble? And if we are in trouble, what should we be doing if not that? So, you know, uh, for most of you know that I ran for office. Uh, and, you know, the reason that I ran for office is that I, I saw Hurricane Sandy and I was in Howard Beach and I was saying, how come we're not doing anything to elevate those uh, 
those areas. And, you know, I looked at the model in Florida, as a matter of fact, specifically in Miami. And what they did is that they gave homeowners grants. And that grant is basically, you, you basically build a mound around your house that to, to kind of uh, give it an extra four or five inches. And that if, you know, for a level two hurricane, that, sh that would, should withstand areas in the Rockaways and Howard Beach and Hamilton Beach. And, you know, and it was a very successful program in, in Miami. In Miami, I wanted to kind of push it uh, into this area. Our local politicians need to do a lot more to safeguard our uh, uh, infrastructure, our homes, because a lot of us, you know, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're based mostly middle class and we work very, very hard. And owning a home is the American dream. And just seeing it go away like that, you know, for many of the people in Howard Beach, they were aware how much, uh, you know, uh, uh, flood insurance costs nowadays. It's now arms and legs. And for, mo for most of them, they have to go directly to the federal government to get that uh, to that insurance. It is a problem. And we need to kind of uh, solve that. We need to make sure that uh, to restore the areas, there's areas, for example, in Howard Beach, that is Phragmites. Those Phragmites are not a good buffer for uh, extreme. We wanna change it to, uh, to Spartina. The Spartina, a good uh, plant species that can safeguard uh, some of that area from uh, extreme weather. Uh, you know, this month, we're still not far away from uh, extreme weather. It could still hit us, we don't know. Uh, but again, you know, even, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, there were major rainstorm that hit us that a lot of the city, as we are well aware, were flooded. So, you know, there's a, uh, to, to invest in upgrading the, uh, the sewer system infrastructure is very costly, and it all comes out of our own pocket. We cannot afford it. So, so yes, ben, wait, wait, did you mention there was a species of plant that would help? Yes, I was going to say, I was going to ask that. Yeah, so 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 for those uh, uh, that do ecological restoration, there's ways and means of doing it, and 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 choosing specific plants that are native to the region. Uh, for example, you know when I uh, was working on on the landfill, we were able to plant Alternaflora spartina in the Hendricks Creek. We also did it in uh, in uh, Thursby ba uh, Basin uh, when we uh, you know there was a major work there that was done to. Uh, uh, to improve the sewer system there, part of it is to do uh, uh, environmental uh, restoration. And we uh, took out the Phragmites that, that you see that are, you know, these large, those are invasive species. So we want native species that are strong enough to, that, that serve more of a buffer that slows the water. And, you know, uh, and, you know, New York City Parks Department, or, you know, they have gurus in their natural, uh, 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 Natural Resource Conservation Group could really work on this and do a good job and help us uh, protect our city today, not not in 30 or 40 years. So it, to me, that sounds like it's a no brainer. I mean, if you're talking about plants, planting some plants that can that, you know, can help reduce the risk, um, what would be the opposition to, to doing something like that? So, so, you know, back in 2007, when I was doing the Jamaica Bay Watershed Protection Plan, we uh, located all the properties that are uh, owned by the government, by federal government uh, and the city. And they were all registered, uh, uh, you know, by the city DCAS uh, uh, department. Uh, and we were able to freeze those, but we really had a hard time because, you know, that perception of uh, having a house uh, waterfront home, it is a dream that marketers sell it, 
and they, people ended up buying it and it becomes problematic. But, uh, you know, uh, we could use a uh, law that, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, uh, Mike could tell you more about you know, some eminent domain or for emergency or whatever that the city or the state could take over some of these vacant lots that exist within the coastal areas and reimburse the private owners and convert them into wetlands that, you know, that saves uh, a lot of these homes that are vulnerable to extreme weather. Okay. Ah, okay. So it's, it's private properties that's, that, you know, people aren't doing anything with that. Uh, it's kind of holding that some of that back. Yeah, you know, and uh, after Hurricane Sandy, uh, the federal government gave funds to uh, people that lost their homes. Uh, you know, a lot of it was really mostly Staten Island and uh, Broad Channel. For Broad Channel, they, you know, what they did is they uh, they raised the home. But if you know, but if they gave them the money instead of raising that home, it would have been a really win-win situation because if you look at the cost of raising those homes, you know. At that time, it was like three, four hundred thousand dollars. And at that, you know, home at that, you know, 10, 15 years, the, the, the price wasn't that much. So people wanted to cash in and leave. They should have done that. But the, what they did with the contractor, they raised the home. And then you see that, you know, if you were, if you uh, travel by broad channel, you can see a lot of these homes are raised. Uh, you know, it is green fences too. that build it back program was disastrous in the way it was implemented. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes, I, I agree with you. And it was, uh, uh, you know, the the local should have played a, a bigger role rather than just, uh, you know, uh, build back, uh, you know, very fast, very wide, uh, very chaotic. Wow. Now, I saw a proposal once that was about putting old subway cars that weren't going to be used anymore into the water or some kind of buffer. Is that a crazy idea or could that actually work? No, it, it's, it is a crazy idea. Uh, you know, a lot of these old cars, you know, if you remember that in the 80s, a lot of those old trains, they dumped them uh, as part of a, a program to increase the iron, uh, or I should say lead for the uh, ecology of the water uh, to build these reef systems that disappeared. But it's not a good idea to propose that, that idea. The natural way is you you know you want to know you want to see how nature treat our areas for the last million years the geological history you know New York City if you look at Forest Park uh, and if you go to Long Island you know that is uh, the the glacier that the, there's two glaciers that actually start up in that region there's the uh, one of them is called the Ranconcoma ter ter uh, terminal moraine and then there was another one, uh, another terminal moraine, and you could see from there it goes downhill. And that was, uh, you know, you could see for the last hundred hundred years that's that slope. But again, you know, for the last fifty plus years, we build in low lane areas prior to implementing a lot of these, uh, you know, before the EPA, especially you know that the build quick program started in the nineteen fifties. You know, I remember when I uh, my neighbors were, you know, they passed away. But they were they grew up in the neighborhood. They remember the aqueduct used to be a potato farm. Wow. So Jeremy in the chat says they do that. They put I mean, sorry, James in the chat. They do that. They put all subway cars and buses in the water and sea life uses them as reefs. I wasn't aware they did that over here, though. They did it further out in the sea, not here. Uh, it is like, uh, you know, uh, more in the a little bit further from the bite of the Big Apple, if you understand what the bite of the Big Apple uh, tributaries areas and estuaries and things like that. Right. Jeremy in the chat says they are building jetties in Rockaway 
I saw from my daughter's nursing home window on 114th Street. Yeah, that was something Rockaway fought for for a long time. Shout out to John Corey and all the ag- advocates really Rockaway fighting for those jetties to protect the beach. And we always say the beach isn't just about recreation. It is a line of defense or supposed to be a line of defense against the weather. But you see in some places so much erosion and in particular areas where you don't have the jetties. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take an environmental scientist to see that there's a problem. There's a ramp to the ocean, which is supposed to be a ramp to the beach. I mean, you need that sand there uh, to protect us, right? Yes, you constantly got to feed that area with sand. And, you know, it's a natural system. The water knows how to behave in that region. It, it adapts. It moves really quick. Uh, the idea was to really slow down. And a lot of these politicians, uh, it is easier for them to sell quick uh quick response because it gives them votes, it gives them ideas and, you know, they're not scientists, but what they should do is uh, listen to the recommendation of experts. Right, and also what you see is elected officials acting in accordance with what they can achieve in a term because they're trying to get votes for the next election. If there's a long-term project that is gonna take 20 years, 30 years, maybe it should be started now, but maybe to someone in office, they might think, well, how is that going to help me if I can't put that on my list of achievements? If it's not going to be done in my term, maybe it's not worth doing politically. And that's a problem maybe inherently with our system, but we should be looking at long-term solutions as well as a short term, but ones that make sense. Like you were saying, some of them maybe might not make financial sense or just might not be feasible to do. So we need to look at all these factors here. Um, I think that applies to, as here's a segue, the Queens Rail, Queens Way issue, because the mayor announced $35 million. We covered it last week. In fact, we did a poll on this last week, so we can get into that in a minute. But $35 million for phase one of the Queens Way. And this is part of his Get Stuff Done campaign. And yeah, maybe this is something that can more practically be done in one term. So when he's running for re-election, he can say, hey, look, I started this project. Maybe he can get the shovel on the ground in, in the next couple of years. When you talk about the Queen's Rail, yeah, it's a more ambitious project. Maybe it'll take a longer time to complete. I think we need to prioritize transportation. That helps, that benefits more people than the park. We're not against more park space. It's great. The Queen's Link plan actually says, let's do both. Let's have the rail and have park space along there. They're doing that in other places. You see that in Vancouver. You're seeing that in India. You're seeing that pop up in, in different places. Why is New York City always behind the times on everything? So our poll from last week, do you think we should wave the white flag on the Queen's Link or continue to fight stronger than ever? And maybe it comes as no surprise, but 100% respondents said fight. So so I I am an environmentalist by profession, so I look at it from a different angle, but I also look at things from a cost benefit analysis, you know, uh, obviously, you know, with today's world with today's politics as being so uh, paralyzed the word that I should use is that you have Democrat that like to score point and you have Republican if you're a Republican in New York City, you do not exist. You know, uh, nobody pays attention to you. Nobody wants your idea. Uh, even if you advocate for your district, bring in funds, bring in resources, you know, your city politics, you know, votes, uh, the, the speaker of the house favors, you know, the people that are going to make changes and favors back and forth. Uh, I, I, you know, the A train runs pretty good. Uh, you know, the question is that, again, uh, it needs a thorough 
study and investigation. Is the A-train uh, sufficient to bring in people from the Rockways at rush hours? Uh, you, know, you know, I see a lot of people still driving cars from the Rockways. Uh, they're, not they're not utilizing public transportation. At the same time, you know, if you're gonna put in a rail, uh, the question to ask, is it gonna be parallel to the, you know, kind of using the same service, but it's parallel to the A-train? Does that make any sense? Uh, should we impose well, it's this? Not, it's not parallel to the A-train. No, no, let, let me talk about in the Rockways, but, but, but we're talking about the unused Rockway Beach line, which extends from Ozone Park to Regal Park, and that's north-south connectivity. Right now, if you look at the A-train on the whole, as you know, it swings through Brooklyn and then it goes into eventually downtown Manhattan. But there's no direct link from the Rockways or South Queens on the whole to Midtown Manhattan. And that's why you have people driving. That's why you have people who are unable to work even in Midtown and access that economic opportunity. Right. right. So, so I see that the two worlds is that I, I actually met with, uh, with two, the, the two group. Each group, one they their way to the highway. They're not willing to uh, negotiate. No, but hold on a second. So I represent the Queen's Link. I'm counsel to the Queen's Link. That is right. a compromised plan. We, we are, and you can go on our website and check it out. We are saying we're for parks as well. We're not against parks. Now, Queens does have plenty of park space. And in fact, Forest Park is right there. You have the Brooklyn Queens Greenway right there, which is in a state of disrepair. We, you could focus on that. But if communities along the right of way, which exists and is owned by New York City, it's a transit asset that the city owns. If communities want more park space there, we're all for that. And there is room to do both. But our issue right now is if you're building this park, if you're designing this park, do it in such a way that's not going to preclude that transit component. Because once you build the park, it's going to be very difficult later to, to come in and say, now we're going to build rail and have rail. And you can't say we're going to have a park over here and a train over here. The train's got to be able to run through. And we don't want to interrupt uh, the park once it's built. And, you know, it's just going to make things uh, impossible. And you mentioned the money. It's going to be too costly at that point. So, yes, study. So do a cost-benefit analysis now. We have a letter signed by 15 elected officials in Queens and two community boards saying we want that EIS on the transit plan. So let's do that cost benefit analysis and see how much it's gonna cost, but also how much money, how much revenue are we gonna get from this? I, I am on the same page with you, but I also, you know, when we do the EIS, I'd assume that I, I actually, when I was running, I, I pushed very hard to get the EIS. And if you look at the area from around Rockaway Boulevard going all the way to the park, you know, there's uh, major issues. You know, one of the, the very first, big issue is that that area was used mostly for industrial use. There's a lot of contaminant that has seeped into the ground. How far did it seep? The contaminant have seeped because you have people that are illegally dumping oil in there that have made it its way. It could be, I could say more than a quarter mile uh, away from that, from that path. Uh, that needs to be taken care of. If we do an EIS, and we do find out that there are there is contaminant in that area, the EPA and the state regulators have to step in and make sure that that area need, that it gets clean, that is going to be classified more of a super fun site. Uh, and I could see that happening. Another big issue from the same area that we see, you get a lot of illegal dumping in that area. And you could speak to you know both community boards and the sanitation department, constant, nonstop legal dumping in that area. I do agree that, you know, that area needs to be improved dramatically, whether we use a rail system 
or, uh, uh, you know, having a sustainable park. You're right. There is plenty of opportunity for both. There is a push from a local politician uh, to just have it as a park. Uh, I understand folks in, you know, in uh, outside our district, more Forest Park, Forest Hill are looking for a park because they have- I'll call out that politician if you want. What was that? I'll call out that politician if you want. You said there's a politician. Yeah. Who is it? Well, I mean, just like I said earlier, I'm not gonna. Uh, no, well, hold on a second, but you you alluded to it now that there is someone fighting for feel, just a park. Feel free to call out the name. I mean, you know, election is around the. Uh, we're in election season, and maybe. Uh, and 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 actually, they uh, there was a picture up, and they were there. Uh, they showed their faces. They didn't hide it. Uh, uh, you know, they blessed the pro the project. Uh, but the point is that, you know, we need to be all on the same page uh, uh, for, uh, you know, people treat the people of the of the Rockways. They are like a different bureau, a different world. They are part of us. And they are, you know, and I know we when we were doing uh, during the election, we were doing a the research. They the turn the turnout is very high in that area. Broad Channel, the, the Howard Beach. They really are the one that put people in office. You know, those are the district. Uh, Ozone Park with Haven, they are reactive, but not proactive. Their voting is very, very low. Uh, so uh, what, I, you know, what I'm trying to say is that the same people need, I, I understand there's a rally on the 2nd of October or something like yes, that. Yes, absolutely right. So we are planning a rally on Sunday, October 2nd at 2 p.m. on the boardwalk in Beach 92nd Street. We are fighting for the train and we're saying, listen. Have, have, you, have you guys also considered have you considered inviting city planning and, you know, having an open open house, open talk with them to see what, you know, what's going on? What the yes. Yeah, absolutely. So this is not going to be the only event. And we are doing meetings also in private. But, you know, it isn't only about meeting with officials because there, there's a lot of that. And in fact, I think that's pretty much how the Queen's Way plan got that green light with back room dealing. We're saying, listen, we want to get the public involved in this. We want the public to have a say, because I think if you ask more people in the street or just in out in Queens or out in the city, they're going to say we need better transportation, even in Forest Hills. I think there are more people in Forest Hills who say we got to get to work faster. We got to get to school faster. We need that train. So the public needs to have its say on this. And here's a softball question for you, Aaron Judge. I understand this comes from Lixa in the chat. I understand as an environmentalist, you are correct. We need green space, but we need to get cars off the road as well. Right. So doesn't that speak to your environmental concerns? Well, I, I am not a, you know, again, I am not, a, I actually met with the group when I was running for office and I am for high tech, uh, uh, speed, not only uh, transportation, but speedway. Uh, you know, I, I need them to get from point A to point B in minutes, not in hours. So, you know, it is, it is doable. Uh, you know, it is doable. It is, you know, uh, for you guys, you should, you know, uh, it is reach out to Columbia University. They could give you the numbers, how many cars and how much carbon, uh, secretion could, you know, you, you know, by avoiding thousands of riders a day, cars, uh, that could play a huge role in, in making the decision. But I am for Speedway, uh, you know, getting from the Rockways to uh, Mid Queens, not only using the system that we see today, but the future. Uh, that that could is a great point because I have said this as well. Why are we still trying to get a train to our airport? Why are we still trying to connect North Queens to South Queens or South Queens right. to the rest of the city? Why is that even the conversation now? The Absolutely. conversation should be about high-speed rail, getting 
from New York to DC in an hour. I mean, big things. Timid, you're in Japan. They've got the bullet train. They, they can they do much better in other parts of the world. We're so behind the times. And you said New York is looked at as a capital of the world. Well, we need to live up to that. And we are falling wow. behind. And there's a point I wanted to make also on something that you brought up a few minutes ago. You said that there was a lot of illegal dumping and there could be environmental concerns with some of that land. Now that would apply for not only a train, but also for a park, right? I mean, I, I would think it would even be more dangerous for people to be walking or right. riding their bike in a, in a park space that's polluted and contaminated with, with all the stuff. So the study that needs to be done isn't just on the train. If they're going to build a park, they need to do an EIS on that as well. I know they mentioned that they were planning on it, but they can't just start building a park here. We need to see really what all the environmental factors and how is this going to affect people? Is it even safe to do so? And they haven't demonstrated that yet because the study hasn't even been done yet. I had a meeting with, uh, you know, a representative from the uh, former New York City DEP commissioner and now works for Trust for Public Land, Carter Strickland. And I mentioned what it needs to get the, the project going uh, the right way. And, you know, again, we need to look at the future, not the past or the present. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're going to put a railroad with similar to the A train now, that is a disaster. But if you're going to put a speedway, uh, you know, never call it. We need to change the name first <laughs> to speedway rather than, a, you know, that old rail that, uh, you know, travels that will the perception will take you an hour to get from the Rockways to Forest Hill. We want it to be five minutes. If that could happen, you know, it could be a model uh, for uh, transportation, efficient energy transportation. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, you, you do have a team that it could actually uh, build a model using AutoCAD and something like that, that kind of, you know, the speed and uh, it could be, uh, be implemented in various parts when we, uh, and if it worked, we could eliminate a lot of the cars, uh, you know, maybe change the LIE into a speedway too. You know, people that come from, you know, I have uh, co-workers that come from uh, Long Island. They spend two to three hours on the road. You know, uh, all they're doing is contributing uh, carbon uh, dioxide to this planet. And uh, uh, it is sad. Right. And um, we got a comment here in the chat how New York City is one of the oldest cities in the world and harder to upgrade to newer public transit system. I mean, but aren't there cities even in Europe that are older? And oh, there, there, there are cities in Europe. There are cities in Europe that are older than our whole country. Um, and, you know, and have better transit systems than we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was in uh, Denmark, and uh, one of their capital buildings, one of their government buildings was like, you know, a couple hundred years older than the United States itself. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think it's just a matter of priority, right? You have to prioritize that we want to upgrade or advance or modernize the infrastructure or the environment uh, to prepare for what's coming you know in the future or to even catch up to the modern world right now so that's what is necessary is that prioritization and why is it that 1962 is when this line last ran and in new york city we had better transportation at least in this part of the city because you can get from Howard Beach to Penn Station in I think about a half an hour or less that might have even been like 28 minutes I saw an old train schedule from that time you can't do that now you know so what happened there I mean we're really behind we, we, we were better off 60 years ago so as, as a scientist uh, how far how far away are we really from you know, uh, Star Trek type teleportation. 
Now that'll really alleviate transportation problems. <laughs> that question should be uh, addressed to Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm, I'm more uh, environment, uh, not more of artificial intelligent and futuristic. Uh, but I think you know the science is there, uh, the resources is there. Uh, it's just a matter of having the right people leading us. Uh, you know, from both the private and the public sector. And, uh, you know, New York City is the capital of the world, the financial capital of the world. And any, if anywhere in the world, in, in America, that needs to be upgraded, this is the place. Um, this is the place, not only in transportation, but also modernizing the way we live, uh, use less cars, uh, uh, promote public transportation, uh, I know there's a path, for example, there's the congestion pricing that is within the next year or so, it's gonna happen whether we like it or not. Uh, people going to downtown Manhattan are gonna pay a heavy price. Uh, they, they know how to get things done when they want to. Um, and as a matter of fact, 99% uh, of parking in New York City is still free. You know, We're still privileged compared to other cities uh, in the world, uh, we need to re-engineer uh, how the city is done or is managed, uh, and we have an aging infrastructure. If you get a chance, uh, any of your audience, go to the Association of Civil Engineers, and they what they do is they rate the uh, the urban infrastructure fee for many cities. Uh, all over the world, especially in America. We in New York City get a grade of a D minus constantly. So that means that, you know, we're just making it. You know, all these bridges need a constant upgrade. Uh, uh, you know, in our district, yeah, they did the Adabo Bridge, you know, they redid the Adabo Bridge. There's still issues in various parts, but the infrastructure is very old. It needs uh, upgrade. Uh, the sewer system, uh, very, very expensive, uh, you know, and then we still have a long way to go. We're not there, uh, but I think we need to spend resources where it needs to be spent. You know, unfortunately, uh, I wasn't a fan of the de Blasio administration. Uh, they took a lot of resources from places it needs to be. For example, you know, New York City Police Department when they defunded the police, you saw what happened. You saw crime just suddenly spike. Early on, we had I had a discussion with Mike about uh, a lady that was attacked last week in uh, Howard Beach, unfortunately. Let's talk about that. Yes. I mean, I think most people probably are aware of it, but for anyone who's not, there was a woman, Elizabeth Gomez, who was attacked at the Howard Beach JFK airport station, the A-train station. And apparently there was a man who tried to start a conversation with her and then followed her into the mezzanine. The woman did not respond to the man's advances. And according to police, he then dragged her across the floor of the mezzanine, slammed her into a wall and repeatedly pounded her with his fists and kicked her about the face and body. Um, she has a non-life-threatening injury, but a very serious eye injury, and of course is suffering from trauma, so she can't really sleep now, she can't see on her right side, and it hurts. Apparently the man muttered something incoherently about Satan in the moments before the attack, and if you look at his history, in 1995, 
he was arrested for murdering his foster grandmother at the age of 14. Six years later, he was arrested for stabbing his 21-year-old sister with a screwdriver. In 2010, he was arrested for attacking three workers at the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, where he was an inpatient, and he was on parole until November 2024 at the time of last week's attack. So, yes, terrible incident. I think the community should be outraged by this. And this is not just an anecdote that happened and isn't really symbolic or representative of what's happening. We are seeing a spike in this kind of event and it's a real problem we need to deal with as a city. So the question becomes, what do we do to address this kind of incident to make sure it doesn't happen again? So Mike, you know, again, the, going back to the de Blasio administration with that bail reform, that was a terrible, terrible idea. You know, when that happened, you know, a criminal commit a crime and is back in the street doing the same thing. We see that that happen again and again. And, you know, our men in blue, they lose the morales when they put their life on the line, try to save us. Right. But let's criminal. be clear and mention that was a state uh, initiative. That wasn't the city. that. No, no, but, but, but at least we could afford it. We could have done our part to fight it. I understand that. But uh, de Blasio just was quiet, was put, also pushing it himself. Uh, you know, he also, you know, that defunding the police, taking resources from an institution that is older than 100 years. You know, uh, for those of us that works in organization, uh, it is very, very hard to put a, a system together that you're constantly testing it over and over and over again. And within 100 years, they create this organization that worked for the people of New York to protect the life of the people of New York. And suddenly, the guy wanted to dismantle it. And that was uh, that was the major disaster. You know, when I was running for office, we were uh, going door to door, it's canvassing, and I had about 30 people. And their number one issue was the quality of life, was that homelessness is a big issue, was they, they don't feel safe. Uh, they didn't, their issue, you know, you and I earlier, we discussed about climate change, storm weather, and all that thing. That was their seventh and eighth uh, even the people that had their home impacted, they want to make that when they go, they go home at night, they want to go home safe. They don't want somebody to follow them. When they're on the train, they want to be safe. They don't want a psych psychopath sitting there in the Rockways. They, they, they uh, opened this halfway house there that a lot of those guys in the halfway house, a lot of the time were harassing people that you know were taking the train a lot of these people used to leave work an hour two hours early so they don't get harassed by these people that are sitting there in their halfway house it is scary we're now having the broken uh, window theory again similar to what the 70s used to be as a matter of fact when i was growing up here in ozone park in the 80s you know although we had crime crimes was all over the city but we were the safest areas. And, and you know, we never had any issues with the uh, crime, local crime. Yeah, there were issues with the, uh, you know, the mafia and things like that, but it was never a crime that, that the quality of, your life, of, of life that we were, I, I could say the safest district in New York City. Well, I do want to point out that this victim, Elizabeth Gomez, did cite the lack of police presence at the station. She said, where were the police officers? I didn't see any. And so that could be something that we could talk about here. Is that what we need? Do we need more of a police presence at the subway stations? 
maybe as a short-term solution, maybe as a deterrent. I don't think we could rely on that, but you know, that, I think that could be part of the conversation here. I can tell you this, people are concerned about taking the subway at night now, and that wasn't an issue 10 years ago. I mean, yeah, in the 90s, things were bad in the city, and people would say that, but we did develop this reputation as the safest big city in America, and there really was no problem. You know, I went to law school in Brooklyn and no issue taking the subway at night. Now I might think twice or, or you know, look over my shoulder a little bit more. I mean, it is a problem now and it's something that we need to be addressing. Yeah, so, so the MTA, uh, you know, they, they just came up with a program where uh, in a joint work with the NYPD where they're gonna install cameras in every, uh, in every car in the trains. Uh, and also uh, there'll be more present they're going to be shifting more people into the transit policing rather than, and then there's the street beat. You know, remember when you see a police officers, you feel safe. We want to see that again, you know, and, and also we, you know, the local commanding officers or the precinct need to be a little more proactive with the community, you know, prioritizing their needs, looking at areas that the hotspot that are, uh, you know, that, ha that have spiked in crimes. I mean, they are programmed, they are professionals out there that could, you know, uh, help us and, and you know, um, own back our city, uh, our streets. Yeah, better lighting too. And that was something we fought for in Ozone Park. A lot of people were getting mugged coming off the train on Liberty and 84th. And we fought for lighting. There was an increased police presence. We had that for a time there. But uh, I think you're right. You have to look at where the incidents are and really study these things and try to figure out what we need uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. But that, to me, feels like a Band-Aid solution. What are we doing in the long run? I mean, this, this guy obviously had mental health problems. We need more mental health services. Yeah, I think we're not doing an adequate job addressing that. And then you have crime that might not be related to mental health or maybe not as directly like muggings and you know just your, your robberies, which might have more to do with economic factors. But all of these things need to be worked out. Whatever the case is, it seems we are failing because we're seeing this and we really shouldn't be. Right, and throwing, throwing more police or just throwing police at something to me is not a solution because not everybody looks at the police and sees uh, safety. Um, especially when you've got, um, you know, discrimination and systematic issues uh, against people, especially people of color. So just throwing more police at, at a situation is, is, not, is not the solution. Um, there has to be other things as well. Now, this guy sounds like he had mental issues. And I don't like, I don't like uh, to say that, you know, uh, everything is a, is a mental health issue thing. But this, this guy sounded like it might have been. So there definitely needs to be something on that front uh, as well, like you said about um, you know addressing mental issues. If there are a lot of mental illness in in some of these homeless shelters or in that population, there needs to be services that that helps to deal with that. But you know, of course, there are legit criminals who are out there just to to rob, and there has to be some other solutions, like you said, maybe better lighting, maybe some cameras, uh, maybe better design on how things are done, so there's not ways for you know, either them to hide in certain shadows or, or, or whatnot. There's got to be other things and just say, hey, let's let's throw some some cops at it. Right. That can never be the entire solution, because, like I said, that's really a band-aid. But I do think that there are areas where it's appropriate, especially if there is no police presence, for example, at a particular subway stop and you're seeing an increase in crime there. Uh, yeah, then maybe there needs to be more police presence there. But that isn't the entire solution. Right. That's just the start of the conversation. It needs to be so much more than that. You know, and this might sound silly to some, but I was reading a study recently that one of the biggest indicators of 
whether someone's going to grow up to commit crime is whether they're literate as a child. So literacy, better education. That's a big piece of this as well. Long term. I know in the short term, people get more reactive and they say, OK, we need more law enforcement, all that kind of stuff. They look at bail reform. Yeah, that's all part of the conversation. But what are we doing long term as a city and as a society to make sure that we don't need this type of short term response? Lixon made the same point in the chat. What are we doing to address mental health? What are we doing to have better education? Even transportation plays into this because it relates to economic opportunity, allowing people to have their own business and prosper. That all plays a role in this. So what are we doing as a city to set ourselves up for success in the future? Because right now we're seeing failure and it's not acceptable. We definitely, I mean, I I do agree with with, uh, both of you, Mike and Jay, that uh, we definitely need to listen to our expert. But what I will add into that is that uh, with today's technologies, where we could connect the dots, uh, the technology is there, you know, knowing people's history that have committed crime, you could actually predict people's behavior uh, by, you know, studying social media. And I think a lot of the intelligent communities are doing that uh, to avert crime or terrorism in, in, in our country. Uh, we could connect the dots to look at people's behavior, and you could determine if that, you know, if that person is a flag that could uh, commit crime because criminals are not smart. They mentally a lot of uh, shaken, uh, but they make the thought open. So we could have a preemptive uh, solution, whether through mental institution or education or something like that. You know, so you could get data from schooling, school system, from social media, uh, uh, from the banking system, from, you know, people are, are alcoholics on drugs. When you add the data together, you could extract an idea of what's going on. But Jay is definitely uh, right. You know, the idea is not to have just a militarized city. After all, we're a democratic country or we're not, you know, police are not supposed to be visible. We're, you know, supposed to be open and, and free to, uh, to flow on the streets without people looking at you on a constant basis. Uh, uh, but yeah, there are solution and you know we need to kind of connect the dots and look at the big picture. Is, is that, I, I wonder, because that kind of makes me a little bit nervous, this, this idea that um, it sounded like law enforcement getting information from schools and from banks and from this and that to make these, basically these files on people to, to predict what they possibly could do. Is that really ethical? Is that something that we really want to do? Is that something that basically treats people as potential criminals before anything happens? Is, is that a type of system that we want well, to be on? And I think that's a good question, but I also think there's a difference between that, what you're describing, and looking at data patterns, right, as opposed to targeting individual people, like thinking, looking at the trends and saying, okay, you know, maybe this particular location needs a different type of response. It needs to be allocate resources differently. I think that's a conversation than let's target individuals. Right. I know. I, I get that. But I mean, I know you're yeah, so, so, Jay, I mean, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, Jay, what I'm trying to say is that, for example, Twitter is open. When you tweet something, it's open. And, you know, and Facebook is open. So when you throw information out there uh, to these open source, it is definitely for our law enforcement's job to catch these, uh, uh, you know, there's data scientists that are responsible or could connect the dot. There's a database system, but I am not an expert in that field that you could kind of, uh, you know, I don't know what level 
that uh, this thing, you know, have been put, there's some books that I have read that uh, uh, people that have published that they sent email in AOL and suddenly they were interrogated by the FBI and something like that. But, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what level of uh, involvement that the intelligence community have on us. Right, right. I just, it, yeah, because I mean, we know there's, um, there's like, um, we don't want to get to the point where like the, the programs in some places in China right now where they basically have this, this, this score on, on people. And if you go below a certain score, then you're restricted from traveling or, you know, doing certain things uh, out in the public or whatnot. And I, I agree, we can use technology and we should be looking into ways to use technology to, to help make people safer, but we also need to recognize and, and you know, realize that we you know, are, are supposed to be a democratic and, and free society as well. Well said, I agree. And that's the point that you made uh, yourself about we don't want to live in a militarized society. We live in a democracy. And so there is that balance to be found. But public safety is paramount. So and, we and need it, to and, work on that in a way that doesn't trample people's rights. And it's people. People are have to have to step up to that challenge as well. It's not just on the institutions and the politicians. The public at large have to has to stand up and, and be a part of that solution that they want to live in. Uh, and I say that a lot to people that come out, that come out here in Japan, like Japan's one of the, the most safest countries uh, in the world. And it's often kind of a joke. It's kind of funny. And people say, oh, well, you can you can place your bag, you leave your bag on the sidewalk and it will still be there later because no one's going to pick it up and touch it or, and take it or whatever. And a lot of foreigners come out and they see that type of thing. And they're like, oh, my God, that's kind of funny. That's kind of whatever. But it's kind of cool. But to, to for that to happen people have to live that way, right? You have to walk past that and not take it and not take, say like, okay, this is an opportunity to, to get something, right? Or, or when people look here and people don't really jaywalk as often um, and people are like, oh, wow, they're not doing it. But to, for that society to exist, people have to not do that as well. You have to not to jaywalk. So this, the public has a responsibility to be part of what they want in, in this society. Right. And I think that goes back to the discussion on education. Right. Yeah. I want to shout out some of the people who have been joining us tonight. Paul, Chris, Jeremy, James, Lixa, Sean, Joe, Artie, Dennis, Perry, Ann, Paul. So he's scrolling through a very lively chat session tonight. Uh, Elisa. Thank you to everyone for tuning in each and every week. We've got Mary. Donald, Margarita, Pat, thank you, everyone else. Of course, if you didn't catch us live, some catch us on YouTube, where we post up all these videos as replays and also in podcast form. If you do podcasts, you can check us out in audio on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, we want to put out a poll question, and we didn't really think of one before we came on here, but maybe it could be related to this. I actually am interested in knowing whether people personally feel safe riding the subways these days, because that's really a point of pride, I think, that we had as a city that it was safe to do so. Like I said, really, 10 years back, it wasn't a thing. People rode at any time of day. Jay, when you were in New York, I don't think, you know, you tell me, did you ever feel threatened on the subway? No, nah, I never had. I never felt any any issues, any problems. I mean, 
you know, and I was, you know, sometimes on the subway at, you know, late nights, you know, I've, I've done the, the, the last train at 1 a.m. and the first train at like, you know, 4.35. And right. I, I didn't really feel that. And, um, you know, New York as a whole, and I've told people even um, uh, when I was living there, people out here that I, I knew back then that, you know, New York is, is, is not what you're seeing from, from the movies from, from the 80s or whatever. It was uh, very safe. It was, you know, you could be out there and and whatnot. So, um, yeah. So it's it's kind of it's really crazy that these problems are popping up more and more out there. That's it's, it's, it's yeah, it's really right. crazy. And I think the turning point really came post pandemic. You know, it really threw a monkey wrench in our lives, our economy, our way of living, everything. People came out of it desperate, and you know, people who were mentally ill uh, had the, you know maybe bore the brunt of it, but. Uh, this is where, where we are now, and we're trying to rebuild from that. Um, so let's uh, put the poll question out for the people. The question of the week is, do you personally feel safe riding the subways at night in New York City these days? We'll see what we get. Yeah, it's a good poll question. It seemed like, um, uh, Khaled, like you had a, a, a something to add. So I, I, I take, uh, in my new job, I do take the train every day. Uh, and I feel really safe. Uh, it's been very crowded lately. Uh, you know, uh, people are forget, uh, which is good news that the people are forgetting about the pandemic. Uh, you see less than 10% of people wearing masks. I'm one of those that wear the mask. Uh, it's pretty safe. I haven't had any issues going, going to Manhattan, but coming back, you do have these destructive people uh, that are sleeping in the train that are rowdy, that are looking for trouble. Uh, that's been common, usually after 3 p.m. Uh, and mm -hmm. I heard, you know, I haven't went home early, earlier than that, but I'm assuming after 10 in the morning, you're gonna see people just being rowdy. Uh, Cause again, those people don't have jobs. A lot of them are mentally unstable. Uh, but in the morning, it's been really good. Uh, people are really friendly. Uh, it's I, I get to the train station when it's still nowadays when it's dark, uh, and it's been a good experience to be to be uh, to be fair. Oh, good. Knock on wood. I hope it stays that way, and I hope we can improve this situation for everyone, so we don't have any incidents anymore, or at least get it to a much more controllable level. It's to me, it's it's an outrage, you know, and it just it just whatever it is, it just shows that we're failing as a city and we just need to do better in so many areas so that the situation doesn't occur. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it sounds like, you know, we've got uh, looking at two two former candidates here, we've got good ideas and, uh, you know, doing doing work, work in the system and with with more people that are being active and, and trying to push for new solutions, um, I think that there's reasons to possibly be optimistic. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because we actually had a few um, former opponents, I guess you could say, on here in the past few weeks. So it's, it's good to be able to put our heads together and say, listen, you know, we, we are in this arena because we care about our communities and why we stepped up to the plate in the first place. And that still holds true. And we want to be able to work together with all of our colleagues to make this a better place. Now, I just had a conversation earlier today 
with someone who was pessimistic about the state of the neighborhood and our city. And I said, I still do believe in what we have to offer. I still do believe in this place. I know that things are looking rough right now, but there are a lot of good people out here trying to make a difference. And I do think that we'll get through it uh, if we don't lose that faith. Yes, definitely. When, when I ran for office, you know, uh, I did have opponent, but uh, I could say that that I'm really proud that all of us ran a very, very uh, uh, successful campaign. Uh, there was not a single incident of any of us attacking one another. Uh, we were very civilized. And I could say proudly that we were the only district that, that we, were, we got along together. Uh, we all had different background, you know, me working for the city all my life. Mike has been in the legislative uh, uh, angle and you have Felicia from the nonprofit world. Uh, those were really the main uh, Democratic uh, opponent. Uh, the rest couldn't raise any funds to run a, a good campaign. Uh, but I think the district need to know that they really need to uh, elect a Democrat, and not just a Democrat, but also a moderate Democrat. Uh, you know, we need to let go of that extremist left, uh, left ideas uh, and their uh, entourage that kind of pushing for uh, these crazy ideas that have not been proven. Because if you bring in an idea that is just going to be an uh, extreme, that you you could hurt people, and we've seen that happening today. Uh, it's taken a lot of these programs out of uh, uh, you know. Now the city council is really occupied, been occupied by these far left uh, people with their ideology. I was expecting a more moderate, uh, moderate Democrat that makes sense of, of ideas and politics and have the institutional knowledge to really push uh, and fight for their district. Well, your point is well taken about us being able to work together. I'm still kind of thrown by you saying that there was no attacks. I, I mean, I think <laughs> to get a little crazy at, at certain points, but at the end of the day, we were able to get through it and, and say, listen, uh, you know, we're here to work together for the betterment of the community. It's not about us. So we can put that to the side. Yeah. So I think what, um, what we normally do is we usually give our guests the 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 last word, we call it the bottom line. Um, so we'd like to offer you the last word on, on the discussion on everything and, and whatever you know, we talked about today. So um, if you would, what is the bottom line? Well, for me, the bottom line is that, you know, I am a member of the community. You know, I've been here all my life and I've been blessed uh, with getting a good education in the district elementary school, uh, junior high, high school, college, grad school, uh, and not only be me, but also my siblings. Uh, they are very successful and, you know, uh, they grew up in the district. My son is now second year medical school. My daughter's graduating. She's going to be a, a, a teacher. Uh, so, you know, I owe, owe uh, this district uh, a lot uh, and I want to uh, give back. I have gave a lot back working for the government, for local government, uh, you know, from doing the Jamaica Bay Watershed Protection Plan to the nitrogen consent judgment to the landfills and on and on. Uh, I had some ideas to uh, bring in uh, a lot of resources from a different angle, uh, but unfortunately we didn't succeed, but it doesn't mean that uh, we need, we're gonna stop. 
we got to continue pushing because this is really our neighborhood. This is where we are living. This is, we want the quality of life to be better for us and much better for our kids. Uh, you know, we can uh, look the other way around. We need to hold our local politician accountable for everything that happens here because they need to be out when something happened. They need to let uh, uh, the politician or uh, uh, whoever's working for the government that they need to do their job. And if that's not gonna happen, uh, we could lose our way of life. All right. Absolutely. I, I agree. I agree with you. Um, you know, we need to hold them accountable and uh, make sure that they're they're working for the people and, and, and less for themselves and their careers. So. Yes. Well, thank you, Khalid. Thank you, Jay, as always. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This is Nuance, and we will catch you next time. All right. Great. Thank you for having us, uh, Michael and Jay. Great meeting you guys. Bye-bye. All right. Have a good one.